Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. And some of you weren't here five weeks ago when I was with you, so it's been quite a while. And it's good to see all of you back in the Lord's house here this morning. I would direct your attention to 1 Kings chapter 22. Today we're going to be considering verses 24 through 40. Last time I was with you, as you know, we considered the preceding 23 verses, and we found right in the heart of that great passage, particularly in verse 17, a picture of the gospel, that even as it was advised for the prophet of God that those who were under the reign of Ahab and all of his weakness and wickedness would find peace if they returned to their homes before battle, we found that as they are without a master, without a shepherd, that that was based both upon history and the passing of the mantle, as it were, from Moses to Joshua, carried all the way through to the New Testament and how it was that the Lord Jesus, the far greater Ahab, looked upon Israel and saw her in all of her sin and shame and longed to gather her to himself as a hen does her chicks. And he became the one who took his people to the home that he had prepared for them, for the testimony of John 14:3, and in so doing was himself their peace. And surrounding this glorious truth were three distinct observations that we made regarding the Word of God, considering the Word of God, of course, as it comes to his people through his appointed prophets. And the first thing that we noted then was that the Circumstances in which Ahab found himself at the time, and though there was justice to be meted out upon his own head because of his sin per the prophecies that had already come to him and to those surrounding him, that he nonetheless, for reasons we'll probably never fully understand, wanted the word to come forward, but wanted it to come in the fashion that he would like. And he called for, very ironically, particularly we see in verse 8 of chapter 22, the very word that he despised by virtue of his testimony that he hated Micaiah, who was the true prophet of God. And we saw with this that even as God is carrying out his judgment upon one who deserves it, that in no way precludes him from being gracious in that he continues to set truth and to set the glorious things of which we've just sung here in this service today already before the wider swath of his creation and calling them and summoning them to avail themselves of those promises and their benefits. And then secondly, we saw principally in verses 9 through 14, uh, something of the finality and the unalterability of the word of God for the testimony of Micaiah, the one who said, what did he say? Whatever the Lord speaks to me, whatever he gives me to say, that I will speak. And we saw with his confidence in such a statement that there is an unalterability and immovability to the declarations of God. God said it, and whether men believe it or not, the matter is settled. His word stands before all times and shall in the future that the grass withers and the flower fades, but his word stands forever as abides forever as Isaiah the prophet has said. And then finally in the closing verses we noted what I termed strike us as we read them as almost pre 
apocalyptic language there in this uh, rather strange upon first reading description in the latter going of the previous passage, particularly verses 19 through 23, about how it is that God will use an evil spirit and how it was that Ahab specifically in his jettisoning of the Word of God, his disregarding it provisionally, served to be the very providential vehicle through which judgment came to him. Sort of proving, if you will, that God is a God who will, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, as he indicates there, particularly beginning in verse 21, He will give us over to the desires of our heart if we insist upon them. Okay, that's the way you want to live lawlessly. Okay, go ahead and live that way. And God will use our rejection of truth as human beings to be the very ways in which He brings what is just in His sight upon us as we deserve it. Evil spirits, that's an interesting concept to to think about, but we noted as we looked at one particular New Testament passage, did we not, that even God himself will use evil to bring about his will. Martin Luther once said, we have to remember that the devil is God's devil. It's strange, but there's some comfort in that. As we see evil rampant round about us in our day, we have to understand that all the evil that we see is yet on the leash of the sovereign Lord who will glorify himself somehow in all that is before us that is difficult for us to see. And so as we come now to round the corner into the final chapter of Ahab's life as recorded in Scripture, given the three things we've already discovered five weeks ago about the Word of God, I simply today want to observe three more. So we're calling this sermon Toward the Gospel Part 2, and we're going to look at it as, as we examine the text, we need to keep our view particularly toward the broader theme of the extension of his kingdom and all of those unfathomable, mysterious ways whereby he exercises his power and his authority, specifically his rule, and the fact that he is the one with whom ultimately the responsibility for the application of all that God requires to the people of God, is something that cannot fail. He said before he issued the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our Savior, as we come to his table, it is essential to remember, merited in his great work, ownership of all things. And the buck stops with him. And even as he is a just God, he continues to be one who is merciful and who is gracious. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention now to the text. And our writer under the inspiration of the Spirit says these things, 1 Kings 22, verses 24 through 40. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations and bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. 
So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come here this day assembling as your people, uh, we come, so many of us, weary in well-doing, not only needing encouragement, but needing an infusion of your grace and love and power that we might be equipped to press on in the good fight that lies before us. We ask now that by your Spirit you would use your Word to accomplish those things in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. William Carey, the missionary to India in the late 18th and early 19th century, on the side to put food on his table, worked to make shoes and worked, as we commonly know, as a, a cobbler. And People like to advise him about the aspects of his business, and he grew rather frustrated with someone one day and, and said to them, my business is to be about the extension of God's kingdom. Now, he knew, of course, that God was the one with the power and the authority who was at work. But in that statement, he communicates that most important to him are kingdom matters. And as we think about the kingdoms in Israel over her history and how ultimately they all ended, we see something of the supersession, do we not, of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ ultimately over other kingdoms. Uh, that's what 
kingdom extension consists of, and namely that all of those whom God has covenantally set his affections upon, all of his elect, to bring them into that kingdom, justify them before himself, and be about the work of the sanctifying of the same. That ultimately is what we're working toward. Everything that we read in Old Testament narrative speaks ultimately to that, be it specifically or broadly. And as we do, as we today approach this text, having our eyes set upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're afforded particulars that enable us to acknowledge and to grapple with the reality that as God does so, things that happen both in this day and indeed in ours, are mysterious. They're odd to us. We, we don't understand them. And there's two aspects of that, is there not? There's the, the particulars that were given in special revelation. We read a passage like this, and if you're a diligent Bible scholar, perhaps you're already thinking of multiple questions about why we're told the things that we are here. Uh, why is it that... Jehoshaphat, or what's going on in his mind as he goes along with what Ahab wants to do? Uh, Why is it that dogs licked up both the blood of Naboth for the testimony of 1 Kings 29, 19, and the blood of Ahab, but there were not prostitutes present washing themselves in the blood of of Naboth? Uh, Why are we told the things that we're told? Why are there sometimes parallels that make sense and sometimes the absence of them and that doesn't make sense to us? All of that points us ultimately to a greater mystery. Why is it that the true and living God from whom men have estranged themselves would seek to reconcile them and accomplish said reconciliation by punishing his own son for what they had done. I mean, that is a mystery that eternity will roll and the saints therein gathered will never fully understand. But we have the promise as God works through his power and his authority that we will, as one hymn so aptly put it years ago, understand it, we'll understand it better by and by. That we have the promise that there will be disclosure of what God has done that we don't understand, and he will interpret it. Because you see, mysteries, biblically speaking, are not commonly what we think of when we read our favorite mystery novel or watch our favorite mysterious film. We're fascinated by whodunits, but whodunits not the question when it comes to salvation. We know who's done it. But what looms over us so large and so mysterious are the intricacies of how and why in order to humble us. I believe those are the reasons that we have such mysteries to break us and to put us at that place for which we are created even now, to bow before him and to simply worship and to come into the greatness of him that we do not understand. And so today's theme is that it is the responsibility of mankind to believe the Word of God and to trust in Him and honor Him as He upholds His justice and dispenses His mercy at His good pleasure as we await the full disclosure and the interpretation of all His works at the last. Now, the Apostle Paul said he knew in part, then he would know fully. We need to understand when we think about this that 
there are boundaries set upon what God would have us even in eternity know to preserve through eternity the creator-creature distinction. So he's not saying that there's going to be a fullness quantitatively of what we understand, but God will bring about the fullness of what he has ordained and he will make clear so that we can look back on our struggles and trials over our lives and see to some degree of satisfaction that will bless our souls and will sanctify us what it was, in fact, that he was doing. I love that last line of Cowper's great hymn, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. For God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I say all of that because those are the proper lenses through which we must view this great historic text if we are to be in wonder before our God and to understand the truth that he desires for us to know. The 17th century English poet Francis Quarles, I think, summed it up nicely when he wrote, The meditation of divine mysteries, as we do so, we must keep our hearts humble and our thoughts holy. Let philosophy be not ashamed to be confuted. Let not logic blush to be confounded. What thou cannot prove, approve. What thou cannot comprehend, believe. And what thou can believe, admire, so shall thy ignorance be satisfied in thy faith and thy doubt swallowed up with wonders. The way to see daylight is to put out the candle. And the matters that are before us, of course, come in and through the one who is the light of the world. And if we gaze at that light, we will see him for all that he is and we will worship. You see, if you don't have a mysterious God, you don't have much of a divine being, and we can only prostrate ourselves fully before one we can't fully comprehend. And that's a blessing. And that leaves us, as Isaiah was, undone. That leaves us, as Habakkuk was, quaking, with decay creeping into his bones, all that we might worship and be deposited back at that place. And I suggest to you that these matters will assist us in so doing if we have that proper perspective. There are three things, as I indicated, that I want to to observe this morning. First of all, in the first five verses, in verses 24 through 28, we see, with all of the difficulties of this passage, I'm suggesting to you a dishonor with God's Word as He is proving His faithfulness. That is, as God is about the work of continuing to show himself worthy of trusting and showcase his fidelity and his commitment to all that he has done, this comes to us juxtaposed to the Word of God in the person of the prophet of God, specifically Micaiah, undergoing a great dishonor, a great disgrace, a suffering, if you will, Now let's walk through these first five verses and talk about this in that light. Zedekiah, who was the ringleader, as you know, of the 400 prophets who were more into fake news than truth, 
comes and strikes Micaiah on the cheek. This shows something, does it not, not only of the anger that wells up in men when he doesn't get his way, but particularly as representative of the one who hates truth. He gets the Will Smith treatment right off the bat. Notice how he's unshakable in this sense. He doesn't introduce anything new. He doesn't go back and repeat the prophecies. He simply holds to what he has stated before. Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. It's coming. Just wait and see. That's really what the content of that great statement is. Zedekiah is scurrying around the issue, wondering how the Spirit of the Lord had gone from him uh, to this Micaiah. There's been a great deal said about this, and this has been analyzed in many ways. I think it suffices to say that simply in this interrogative, the writer is communicating as the Spirit inspires him the fact that very simply Micaiah has the Spirit and Zedekiah does not. Uh, he can try to dress this up any way that he wants to. He can look toward those who are surrounding the situation in their confusion and try to build a case with them by indicating that somehow he has been shortchanged. But the true prophet of God and those who trust in him know what is really happening here. And Micaiah simply says, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into the inner chamber to hide yourself. That's language that brings with it indications and representations of the last days and even judgment on the last day. It's interesting to note that Ben-Hadad, upon release, had escaped to an inner chamber. So the true prophet of God is anticipating that Zedekiah and perhaps others will do that too. They'll somehow try to go in and hide as God's truth unfolds in the way that he has predicted. And that too is something we think about when we consider the final judgment. Think of the wicked on that day who are not within the safety of the righteousness of Christ. They too will be looking for an inner chamber in which to hide where am I going to go? Think of the fear. Think of the awesome trepidation and angst and heartache that will come as is foreshadowed in, in, more, in smaller, more microcosmic circumstances such as this. Behold, you shall see. Simple words. And he even indicates in greater confidence, look at verse 28. If you return in peace, as he claims at the end of verse 27, King Ahab does, if you return in peace, he says to him, the Lord has not spoken by me. That's how sure he is that he has the truth. What God has spoken, given him to speak, and spoken through him is true and will come to pass. And let us not miss this. There's some confusion as people study the original as to whom the antecedent for the pronoun he in the last sentence of verse 20, uh, 28 actually is. And I suggest to you that unequivocally it is the prophet himself. Micaiah says, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then he, Micaiah, turns as if to any audience that is there, say, hear all you peoples. He's in unfortunate circumstances. He's going to prison. He's going to be 
given a much smaller diet to which he is accustomed as he goes back to be under the auspices of Joash who headed up the prison system in Samaria for his father and be in these meager circumstances, but he musters enough energy by the grace of God to once again preach in this account something of a final message, if you will. I'm telling you, all you who can hear, that Zedekiah and company are wrong and I'm right. Please hear me. Please hear me. He's going down with everything he has to dispense and proclaim and herald truth to anyone who would have ears to hear. We see with this the proving of Yahweh of his faithfulness. You'll see on that day, just wait, just wait, Hananiah smashed Jeremiah's yoke, which we read in Jeremiah 28, and declared that God would never permit Babylon to conquer Judah. And Jeremiah's way of saying, just wait, there in Jeremiah 28, verse 11, was to walk away. He had that much confidence in his God, and Jeremiah predicted this one's death. Within two months, he was dead. And it's interesting, in verses 15 and 16 of Jeremiah 28, we read, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. How's that for clarity? How's that for directness? How is that from being freed, if you will, from some of the shackles of mystery And God is crystal clear with regard to the things that are of greatest urgency before sinners. That's Jeremiah's just wait and see. Years after we see those goings on here in this passage before us that Ahab and company with Zedekiah and all of the 400, what they would like to do is to confuse and to persuade the nation to trust in lies. But here's the hero of the day in Micaiah saying, Hear, hear me. That is, hear what I'm saying, all you peoples. So we have God proving his faithfulness. But but notice the dishonor of that. He's in prison and he's given meager rations. Meager here is a word uh, that simply means so little that it is beyond being calculable as anything appreciable. So maybe even on some days, crumbs. They're trying to starve out, within the greater context, this truth teller, and yet he keeps on pressing toward the goal of his God. And as we think about this, we cannot help but consider Christ who would suffer, who would be dishonored. He would be imprisoned and confined by the sins of his people. He would undergo such meager rations as being thirsty upon a cruel Roman cross and being given the sop with vinegar. Just take everything you read about this Micaiah and exponentially projected upon the much greater Ahab. And you begin to see that God's faithfulness to you and to me comes at great cost 
that is shrouded in disgrace and shame. And yet, the greatest of kings, the perfect one, the Word in the flesh, keeps on pressing. It is as if in all of His words upon that cross, that day that He speaks here, O all of you peoples, that I am truth. This is what we see as we consider all that God does and the the suffering that is requisite for His people as they come into His favor in this life. One of the things that I've appreciated, though I don't understand all of the aspects of it, are the writings and the teachings of Dr. Derek Thomas when he deals with the certainty of suffering in this life mostly as found in his dissertation, Incomprehensibilitatis Dei, or the incomprehensibility of God, theology proper, or the doctrine of God in the book of Job. Now, when you go to Job, you really see some some suffering. As I said, things we don't understand, even when our greatest scholars teach us. They they can only go so far. And and we, we fall back in, in this wonderment and in this utter helplessness as we think about all of those sufferings. But suffering for some mysterious reason is part and parcel of coming into the ultimate blessings and benefits of God. Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed, what? We share in His sufferings in order that we may share in His glory. And God will bring judgment upon those whom He is pleased to bring it upon. And the messengers of truth are graciously present in His good providence there, but they are suffering. Truth has never gone down easily in any part of the world. The seed of the church has been found where in the blood of martyrs, and it continues to be so. And Christ's example is so much more glorious as Matthew Simpson has written. For he stepped from heaven to earth to get by our side, to lay himself down beside us that we may feel the throbbings of his bosom and be encircled in the embrace of his loving arms as he draws us beside himself to whisper to our ears, God is love. Yes, there are going to be difficult things, and the people of God, the true blue, will suffer. But that shouldn't surprise us, because the greatest one has suffered, and in so doing, has accomplished the salvation of which all of these prophets of old speak, and to which they point. Yes, the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But the Lord's steadfast love does not depart from His covenant people. His peace, the peace contrary to the peace the likes of Ahab claims, is never removed, is never removed in His faithfulness as we see it in the disgrace that accompanies ultimately the Word in the flesh, the very one who bids us come to His table this morning. 
But secondly, I want us to notice in verses 29 through 38 that there is a pledge of the inevitability of God's Word as He is maintaining His promises. You know, the issued promises and the results of them, that dynamic continues even to this day, in this age in which we continue to proclaim Christ in all of His glory. And the good that comes out of that is escorted, if you will, by a pledge that says, inevitably, the things that I have promised to you who trust in me, I will do. We tend to use the term inevitable negatively. It's inevitable that we're going to die. It's inevitable that all churches are going to close except those who are still open when Christ returns. I don't know why that is, but we ought to see that there is an inevitability to the goodness of God and the things that flow from that. We see that worked out here. Now we see something of Ahab's confidence eroding here if he had really believed uh, that his payroll profits were in the right and he was going to come out of this third battle like he did the previous two, uh, why then would he have disguised himself? It's a very awkward, weird kind of thing going on here. He says to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. Now, this is his in-law, remember? And, And this is one with whom... He had uh, political ties. He'd come down. He's going along with the political and civic motions. He seemed to agree, as far as we can tell, with Ahab on on some level that Ramoth-Gilead was a strategic Transjordanian city that they needed for commerce, so he didn't mind coming for a state visit. Uh, Those kinds of things we can understand. We further ask questions, as I noted a little while ago, why is it that Jehoshaphat would seemingly just go along with this. Well, I think we get our answer a few verses farther in, namely at the end of verse 32. But Jehoshaphat, for the most part, was a godly man, uh, one who has been treated as historians, both biblically and outside of Scripture, as one who served the Lord and his people well, though certainly not perfect. So he's going along with this, and they get into the battle there, and... Ben-Hadad has 32 captains coming with chariots leading the men, and he issues this statement, fight, in verse 31, with neither great nor small, but only with the king of Israel. And when his captains saw Jehoshaphat dressed in his robes, they concluded, certainly this is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And what does Jehoshaphat do? He cries out. Now, the following sentence says that when the captains saw that it was not the king of Israel, uh, that they turned back from pursuing him. But we need to note that there's more here than just the visual. Uh, This word, Jehoshaphat cried out, indicates in the original language that there was something on the part of the hearing of those, those in battle, as well as any others who were nearby his particular location at the time, when they heard him cry out that his cry was identified by something of a Judean dialect. Uh, specific. It's not just that they heard any old cry, but when they heard that cry, we said, that guy doesn't sound like Ahab. He's from down south, And by virtue of that auditory connection, then they saw that this is not our man. And they turned back. 
And then what happens? Something very beautiful in terms of stripping away the pride of man or his proclivities for taking credit for himself. All of this action, you can just sort of picturing it. It would make a good film. And then verse 34, But a certain man drew his bow and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. All this pomp, all this circumstance, the two kings, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, all of these no doubt decorated captains, and all of a sudden everything they're intending is averted away, and a man whose name were never given comes in and completes the job. And that's not happenstance. That is so we may know that God is one who uses average Joes that he doesn't even name all the time. I've appreciated listening to Pastor Jim Welch's series down at Peninsula Community Church in Rolling Hills Estates on the no names of the Bible. And just how many of them there are and how these people we don't know anything about, not even being identified by their names and won't know until heaven how instrumental they were in God's carrying out all of those things pertaining to what covenant faithfulness requires. He struck, Ahab is, and in the latter part of the latter part of the 34th verse, he asks his driver to turn around and wheel him out of the battle. And the battle continued all through the day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians. Think about that. He's propped up there. He's watching all this going on. And it is until several hours, it is not until several hours later in the evening that he dies. The first thing you wonder as you read this is, well, was there further um, damage done to him? Did this end up being some type of gangland execution? It seems to indicate the text does, particularly in verse 35 in the last sentence that we have in English, and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. So there doesn't seem to be any evidence of additional wounds that this certain man whom we don't know does the job once and for all, and he is set up there before the people simply to die. Again, you cannot help but think of the Lord Jesus Christ by specific wounds, flogging, nails in the hands, nails in the feet, the spear in the side, the crown of thorns, and he's positioned there before all of the war of the world of sin, as it were, until evening. And then he dies. It's remarkable. Israel is brought to peace when a bad king is put to death. You see that Israel is ultimately brought to peace when a righteous king is put to death. He's taken to Samaria for burial. They wash out the chariot by the pool there. You can just sort of picture this, hosing out the blood as the dogs licked it up and as the prostitutes washed themselves in it. All of this according to the word of the Lord that had been spoken. 
This is the sad and ignoble and undignified end of the one set in place to lead God's people in God's purposes and had had utter disregard for doing so in his reign. But you just, the, the contrast of verses 31 through 33 with verses 34 through 36, all of the captains and all of this drama and all of this pomp and all this battle talk, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, that is shut. And then in the next three verses, we simply have the facts of how a no name finished the work of God on his behalf as his instrument. Perhaps no one around there except his immediate friends would have known who he was. And the end comes. Ahab is positioned for death. He dies. The cry goes out through the army and everyone returns home after battle. The news, no doubt, is part of the cry of the death of Ahab and you're just given this sad sort of rated R picture of the end. And what do we have here? We have God's maintenance of His promises and the inevitability that good comes finally and ultimately for all peoples of the earth who have the heart to believe by God's grace that the one far down the line, perfect in every way, yet without sin, God in the flesh, the very embodiment of the Godhead on earth, endures precisely the same mechanically, but so much more substantively, taking the sins of His people, every last one, into his body to satisfy the justice of God. Now, that's the ultimate picture of God's maintaining his promises. But that brings the hope that enables us to speak of good things as inevitable. Think of the worst thing that you've ever been through. And you may not know that yet. It may be lying ahead for, for some of us. And think about how that unsettles you, but it can never move the promises of God off the mark. There will always be straight away and at center of the universe the commitment of God to save His people and to present them faultless before Him in exceeding great joy. That's not going anywhere. Hold on to that. Strive to retain in all circumstances the glory of that and what that means ultimately for the children of God. For His Word is firmly fixed in the heavens, as the psalmist says. And Jesus has said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. And we're seeing a non-passage of God's words here in this account, in all of its gore, uh, we're seeing that His Word does not return void, but it indeed does succeed in the purpose for which it is sent. And there is, because He is that kind of God, great hope for the inevitable acquittal of the guilty who run into the Christ that they can't fully understand.
Think of that and the confluence of three prophecies, the end of chapter 20, verse 42, verse 19 of chapter 21, and verse 23 of this 22nd chapter. It's been specified from different angles, but here it all is culminating, coming together like three rivers meeting. And, and with this we see, wow, this God is true to what he has said. And then we look to the other promises of God and we find great hope and we know that he will right all wrongs. That's what he's doing here. He's righting a wrong. And that's always hard to see. And then he's ultimately going to right the wrongs of all of those who would ever trust in him by placing the greatest of kings upon the cross sending him into the jaws of death, but with the knowledge on the part of those who had embraced the truth that he had already brought in his three-year ministry, that Jesus' words were true. He was coming back. He was going to rise. And they saw him post-resurrection and pre-ascension. And even then there were doubts within hearts, but he was still bringing truth, applying it. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Instilling these truths that he had taught them and applying them until that time that he leaves and even then says, I am with you to the end of the age. He never leaves his own. And because of that, there is an inevitability to the fact that he will make everything right. I was reading recently about the Doolittle Flyers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle in the air raid on Tokyo on April 18, 1942. There were 40 killed. There were 50 killed, rather, and upwards of 400, including civilians that were injured. But some of the ones who didn't die, who were flying the planes, were captured and sentenced to death. And in this account I was reading, one of them, before his death, wrote a letter to his family in which he said to them, don't let this get you down. Just remember, God will make everything right. I'll see you again in the hereafter. My faith in God is complete. I am unafraid. Where does that kind of confidence come from? It comes from the grace of the same God superintending the outworking of his decrees in this passage. There is inevitably good. As bad as it gets, as hopeless as it seems round about you in this life, he makes everything right. He holds the keys to death in Hades. And this one says, don't be afraid. Do we really believe that? Do we cling to that with every ounce of our being? This is the God that is before us here this day, and we, we need to see him as such. But then finally, in the final two verses of 39 and 40, I suggest to you that we find an accentuation in God's word as he is pronouncing his sovereignty. He's again speaking the fact that he rules and exercises ultimate authority. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we are essentially talking about two things. We're talking about control, 
And we're talking about glory. That is that God exercises total control over all of his creation and that he deserves to be glorified. And so therefore, everything that he speaks into existence by the word of his power owes him glory and exists to glorify him, even as he is leading his own unto glorification itself at the last day. And what we have here is an accentuation accompanying both the spoken word of the prophet coming to reality as well as our inspired writer's account here of what God is doing. We make prominent. That's what accentuate means. We, we isolate, we set off, we, we move out extraneous things that are of no eternal consequence and we set God off as the one whom alone by his control for his glory, is accomplishing all things for his own. What we have in these verses is essentially an obituary. I write obituaries. Fun fact. As you know, I have a degree in broadcast journalism, and in the print journalism class, that's one of the things you have to learn how to do is write an obituary. It's an interesting assignment to be 19 or 20 years old and told to go home and write your own obituary. But because I can do it, people ask me to do it. Most recently, I wrote my own father's in January. And, and it's astonishing, and you know this if you read newspapers. You, people, and now you have to pay for it. They will buy a half of a page in a newspaper to just go on and on and on about how great somebody was. Oh, they did this and they did that. And well. Notice how our writer here wants to move away from that so as to set off God in his glory and all that he does. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Even in his question, you could, if he were speaking that, you can almost hear a sense of frustration and exasperation. We don't have to read all this now. Isn't that over in that other book, specifically in chapter 18 of Second Chronicles? Can't we deal with that later? And what's so humorous about this is the fact that he mentions things he doesn't really want to mention. It's like when you and I are in conversation and we say, I won't say, and then we say it, we just said it. He doesn't want the attention drawn to the ivory houses and the built cities, but he says it anyway. Maybe there's even a little bit of sarcasm in his heart as this comes forth. We don't know. But he's saying, let's leave that for someone else's account. And I always try to do that if I'm writing an obituary, particularly for a believer. The message is here, can't we leave out and forget about the braggadocia and the minutia that makes it up? And cannot we focus on the true and living God? That's what our biblical writer is doing here. So he gives us the most abridged obit you can have. Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. If you want to read about the other things, you can go over to the works of the chronicles, chronicler and find that. 
There's a wider page there. There's more specifics there. But here, we need to accentuate our God so that we may be left with Him, that we may have none other to compete for our own affections, that we may be seeing Him in all of His glory, that we may be filled with Him. And the only way you can do that is to spread your trophies at His feet, as the hymn says, and crown Him Lord of all. Now we need to get back to something of the largeness of our God that we profess in these difficult days where there is unprecedentedly, seemingly unprecedentedly evil around about us and the extent of the damage that it's doing, those several aggravations, as the Shorter Catechism speaks of, in the wicked world. Our accomplishments are of no eternal import. And then you ask, why would God be so gracious to order things this way in light of the sin in the world and the offense that it is to Him and to bring us out of all of this through the Christ that we meet at this table? I close with this. I read this recently and and find that it sums all of these matters up very well. The 19th century Scottish scientist and evangelist Hugh Miller, who was a rather eccentric person, but we all know that sometimes the most profound things come from the most eccentric people. He too was in consideration of the great things to come as the great mystery unfolds as Christ applies ultimately in the end all of his benefits to his people. When you think, for example, of that mystery that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that in the twinkling of an eye we will all be changed. Like that, all of sin and its effects are gone and we are ushered into the eternality of glory and the benefits of grace. And you don't understand that. You can't get your brain around that. But we must do what he's calling for here in keeping our perspective aimed in that direction. Miller says this, The dynasty of the future is to have glorified man for its inhabitant. But it is to be the dynasty, the kingdom, not of the glorified man in the image of God, but of the God himself, in the form of man. Creation and creator meet at one point and in one person. The long ascending line from dead matter to man has been a progress Godwards, not an asymptotical progress. And that's quite a word. If you think back to your mathematics days in advanced algebra, analytical geometry, Remember the instructor talking about that line moving ever so closer to an axis, but never crossing it, never touching it. It's a mystery. I don't understand that, but that's the reality of it. And so he's describing God's work here in history as that. Not asymptotical progress, but destined from the beginning to furnish a point of union. We'll cross the line. And occupying that point as true God and true man, as creator and created, not that Christ is created, he's begotten, but in representation of created man, 
we recognize the adorable monarch of all the future. You look at these sorry kings, and what does your soul cry out for? You want an adorable monarch of all the future. What a summary of the greatest mystery of God, that he would reconcile those who deserve death to himself with the body and blood of his own son, a perfect king, Israel's final king, the true and eternal word in the flesh, stricken, smitten, executed, and rising again for the justification of his people. So as we come today, we meet our adorable monarch again. Even as Israel was delivered temporally by the death of a wicked king, she is delivered eternally by the death of a righteous king. And if you bow to him, he will give you that righteousness. And his promises to you do not consist of disaster, but of deliverance. Ahab met with disaster. Will we meet with deliverance? Even as the dogs licked up the blood of the disobedient monarch, may we wash ourselves in the blood of the obedient monarch. And may all who realize their sin, may they not be prone, as the prostitutes were at Ahab's end, to wash themselves in the blood of an earthly temporal king. But may they wash themselves in the blood of a righteous eternal king who reigns forever in grace and in truth. That's what we have here. And I, and I set this before you today, my dear friends, and I say to you, believe and just wait and see. For behold, all these things will come to pass for you on that day when you stand before God hiding in Him with Christ. Colossians 3, 3. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that Christ is our great shelter and we can have confidence as He speaks to us this day and tells us to hold on and to see on that day when we are united to Thee because we have gone into Him as our inner chamber, that all things that You have spoken are true and are brought to pass in this great King. As we meet with Him, give us grace to humble ourselves and to prepare to be built up in the faith that You have been pleased to give to us. We ask it in His name. Amen.